0: March 1997. The Hale-Bopp Comet was
1: approaching Earth. But for members of Heaven's Gate, the comet's arrival was more than an unusual cosmic event. It was their signal to ascend. If you enjoy these episodes, explore the ParCast original, Cults. Every Tuesday, we examine the history and psychology behind deadly, disturbing cults and their creeds. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Cults. Today, we're gonna to take a deep dive into the lives of Marshall Herf Applewhite Jr. and Bonnie Lou Nettles, the founders of one of the world's most notorious UFO cults, Heaven's Gate. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson.
2: Hi, everyone. In part one of our two-part episode, we will focus on Applewhite and Nettles themselves, their lives, their psyches, and how Nettles helped shape Applewhite from a well-liked college professor and musical theater enthusiast into an infamous cult leader who led 38 people to their graves.
1: In part two, we'll broaden our focus from Applewhite and Nettles to the cult they founded, known as Heaven's Gate. We'll learn about the different members of this cult, their beliefs, and the tactics Applewhite used to recruit followers who ultimately took part in the largest mass suicide ever on U.S. soil.
2: Due to the graphic nature of some of this material, listener discretion is advised. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: I'll tell you who I am. As to whether or not you believe who I am or not is up to you. I'm from kingdom level above human. What does that yield? That yields immediately that the vast majority say, cult. His loyal followers believed him to be from kingdom level above human. But Marshall Applewhite, or Doe, as he was known to his followers, is now considered to be one of the most notorious cult leaders in recent history.
2: Applewhite began the UFO cult, known as Heaven's Gate, in the early 1970s with his partner Bonnie Nettles, or T, as she was known among the members of Heaven's Gate.
1: For over 20 years, Doe and T. preached that they were sent by God to redeem humanity. They claimed to be the two witnesses referred to in the book of Revelations as prophets of God and professed to be aliens or celestial angels, who were temporarily occupying the bodies or vehicles, as they called them, of human beings.
2: But Heaven's Gate came to an end on March 26, 1997, in Rancho Santa Fe, California, when 39 people, including Marshall Applewhite, participated in a mass suicide in order to exit their vehicles and ascend to what they believed was an extraterrestrial spacecraft trailing comet Hale-Bopp, which would take them to heaven.
1: But before we can discuss the deaths of Heaven's Gate members, we must first examine the lives of its leaders. Marshall Herff Applewhite Jr. was born on May 17, 1931, in Spur, Texas, to a family that was, by all accounts, loving and generous. He had three siblings, two older sisters, and one younger brother with a severe intellectual handicap, who would later move into a state-operated home in Texas. According to Marshall's sister, Louisa Winstant, her brother was an outgoing, intelligent, handsome child with a lovely baritone voice.
2: Though as loving as they may have been, Marshall's family was perpetually nomadic. His father, Marshall Herf Applewhite Sr., was a Presbyterian minister who, along with his wife Louise, would move their family from one town to the next in South Texas, where they would found and build churches at each stop along the way.
1: Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Now please note, Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Vanessa, do you think that the Applewhite's nomadic lifestyle played a role in shaping the young Marshall Applewhite into the man he became?
2: Great question, Greg. Children from nomadic families may often find it difficult to adjust to a stable life as they get older. All they know is instability, in a sense, without a place they can truly call home. In classical psychoanalytic terms, Freud posited that people unconsciously seek out the infantile comfort of childhood in adulthood. And when we get to Marshall Applewhite's adult life, we'll see how he seems to constantly seek out another journey or mission, as if perpetually in search of some greater purpose. Applewhite's need to be on the move is likely rooted in the instability of his family's nomadic lifestyle.
1: Geographically unstable, sure. But the young Marshall found answers and stability in his Presbyterian faith. He was deeply religious as a child. In the early 1950s, the elder Marshall Applewhite helped Floyd Chapman, president of Corpus Christi Electric Company, build the Parkway Presbyterian Church and stayed on as minister for the first year. Chapman remembers Applewhite Sr. as a good organizer, who, quote, built our church up to a couple hundred members pretty quick, end quote. He smiled a lot and gave those he interacted with a warm feeling.
2: Sounds like Marshall Jr. took after his father in that regard. His sister, Louisa Winstant described her brother as, a man with so much charisma, he could convince others of almost anything. And
1: that he certainly managed to do. After graduating from Corpus Christi High School in 1948, the younger Marshall sought to follow in his father's footsteps and enrolled in Austin College with his own dreams of becoming a minister. He was a philosophy major and an active member of several student organizations on campus. His freshman year roommate and classmate, John Alexander, remembers his friend Marshall, or HERF, as he was known back then, as having a magnetic personality, which he put to positive uses. As leader of the a cappella choir, the judiciary council, and the campus association of prospective Presbyterian ministers.
2: Marshall also became entranced with one professor in particular, Glenn Maxwell, whom he would list as a reference on his resume over 20 years later. Maxwell first introduced Applewhite to the works of Plato, Aristotle, and John Locke, and according to John Alexander, Maxwell taught his students, quote, to ask the right kind of questions, to not go along with the crowd, end quote.
1: After graduating in 1952, Applewhite met his soon-to-be wife, Anne Pierce and enrolled in Union Presbyterian Seminary of Virginia in Richmond to study theology, still with dreams of one day becoming a minister.
2: But those dreams were soon competing with Applewhite's lifelong love of music. A talented baritone singer, Applewhite relished in the sounds of Handel, Brahms, and old African-American spirituals. And before the end of his first semester in seminary, he dropped out and moved with Anne to Gastonia, North Carolina, where he took a position as the music director at the First Presbyterian Church. Anne and Marshall spent two years in North Carolina and had two children, but were forced to leave the city when Marshall was drafted by the U.S. military in 1954. They spent the next two years in Salzburg, Austria, and then White Sands, New Mexico, where Marshall served as an instructor in the Army Signal Corps.
1: Applewhite received an honorable discharge in 1956 and enrolled in the University of Colorado, where he received a master's degree in music with a focus on musical theater. He played the leads in South Pacific and Oklahoma at the university. Charles Breyers, a former professor who was close with Applewhite during his days at the University of Colorado, described him as happy-go-lucky and someone who was popular with students.
2: After chasing down a number of degrees from various institutions of higher learning, Applewhite still wasn't prepared to simply hang up his hat and settle down somewhere with his family. Just as he was raised, Marshall continued to chase, search, and move to find an opportunity that could be rewarding for him. He spent the next two decades in various states and jobs that were all in some way or another connected to his love of music. After graduating from the University of Colorado, Marshall moved with his family to New York City to pursue a career as a professional singer. According to a New York Times profile of Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles, quote, Mr. Applewhite's voice was a bright, big baritone, and his diction was flawless. He sang opera, but with acting skills, good looks, and a comic's timing, he was probably a better fit for the stage. He tried to catch on in New York in parts of 1960 and 1961, but getting a start in show business proved hard, and he was already a family man with a family's bills to pay."
1: According to his sister, Applewhite was deeply devoted to his children during this time. She recalls, on one occasion, he found a tree on the side of the road, loaded it into his Volkswagen, and brought it into his family's home. He painted it white and hung turquoise decorations on it. Quote, it wasn't a Christmas tree, she recalls, just a fun tree for the kids when they were little, end quote.
2: And in need of supporting his family, teaching had already proven to be a more stable source of income for Marshall Applewhite. He took up a position as a professor of music at the University of Alabama, However, his tenure there didn't last long. He lost his position at the university for a reason that came as quite a shock to his family and friends. Marshall Applewhite had been pursuing a sexual relationship with one of his male students. The paper says Applewhite was a music professor at Houston's University of St. Thomas, but got fired for having an affair with a male student. It says it was at that point that Applewhite went to a psychiatric hospital where he told doctors he needed treatment for what he called homosexual urges. That was in the early 70s.
1: When the media began covering the suicides of Heaven's Gate members in 1997, there was a great deal of emphasis placed on Applewhite's sexuality as a driving force behind his metamorphosis from music teacher to cult leader. At the time, the New York Post dubbed him the gay guru.
2: Many have surmised that Applewhite was vexed by his bisexuality to the point of a sexual identity crisis. His natural desires were certainly at odds with the teachings of his religious upbringing, and he was likely going through an internal conflict to rationalize who he was with what he believed. Robert Balch, a University of Montana sociologist who infiltrated Applewhite's cult for two months in 1975, believes that Applewhite felt guilty about his homosexuality, but was also deeply conflicted about it. Quote, at one moment, he could argue that homosexuality represents a higher form of consciousness. Yet at another, he could be very sensitive about his straight reputation. End quote. Balch also reported that members of the group had to abide by a strict no-sex, no-human-level relationships, no-socializing rule. James Lewis, a professor at the Institute for the Study of American Religion, who studied Applewhite and Nettle's group for over two decades, said Applewhite, quote, was so alienated from his homosexuality that he was teaching people not to have sex. He would put people of opposite sexes together and force them to learn to become neutral, non-sexual, end quote. The ability to overcome earthly desires, including sex of any kind, was a core teaching that Applewhite promised his followers they could achieve in their pursuit of the next level above humanity. After the suicides, it was discovered that at least seven men in Heaven's Gate, including Applewhite himself, had been medically castrated as a show of their permanent commitment to celibacy.
1: Now that is dedication.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. According to gay rights activist Troy Perry, it was Applewhite's repression and society's rejection of same-sex relationships that ultimately led to his suicide. Though this idea has failed to gain support among academics who argue that while not the primary driving force, sexuality may have been one of a variety of factors behind Applewhite's asceticism. It isn't clear to what extent Applewhite's sexuality may have played a role in his ultimate metamorphosis into Doe, the alias and persona he took on in later years as the divine leader of Heaven's Gate. But what is clear is that Applewhite's affair with his male student tore his family apart. After Anne learned of the affair in 1965, she and Marshall separated before divorcing three years later.
1: Marshall left his family and moved to Houston in 1965 to teach music at the University of St. Thomas, a small private Catholic college. He eventually became the head of the music department there and well-known in Houston's local arts community. He was the choral director of the Episcopal Church and sang 15 roles with the Houston Grand Opera. Many remembered him as a well-dressed, charismatic speaker who enjoyed being at the center of attention and was exceedingly generous and endlessly social.
2: But Applewhite's mental state seemed to unravel as several stressors in his life came about. After he and his wife divorced in 1968, after 16 years of marriage, many that knew him said that Applewhite was devastated by not being able to be with his children.
1: Applewhite also seemed to be living a double life. In some circles, he was known to be openly gay with the lover in the Montrose section of the city. Others remember him having a new woman around his arm every time they saw him.
2: He also pursued a serious relationship with a young woman from a wealthy family in Houston. However, she ultimately left him under pressure from her disapproving family, who Applewhite's friends say threatened his life. Applewhite was so distressed that in 1970, he resigned from his position at the University of St. Thomas, citing depression and other emotional problems as his reason for stepping down.
1: Father Thomas Braden, the university president at the time, recalls that Applewhite seemed mentally jumbled and disorganized near the end of his employment at the university. Quote, He was behaving somewhat oddly at the time. Just talking to him, he would mention things that had no connection to the thing he said before. End quote.
2: And according to the New York Times... Patsy Swayze, the mother of the actor Patrick Swayze, who worked with Mr. Applewhite in a theater group in Houston, said she remembered many of the actors and actresses gossiping that their normally well-spoken colleague was suddenly starting to act strangely, talking about UFOs and preaching this strange religion. In her 2005 profile on Applewhite, Susan Raine concluded that he may have experienced a schizophrenic episode during this time, which caused his delusional thinking that people who knew him started to recognize. In
1: 1971, Applewhite moved to New Mexico, where he opened up a delicatessen called The Sunshine Company. The restaurant was a hit, and Applewhite was popular with his customers. However, his stay was brief. Applewhite still believed in his musical and teaching abilities and knew he would never find fulfillment in making sandwiches. So the naturally nomadic Marshall Applewhite decided to move back to Texas later that year.
2: It was around this time that Applewhite's father died, which took a severe emotional toll and sent him even deeper into a depressive spiral. Unable to work due to these issues, Applewhite had gone broke His mounting debt forced him to borrow money from friends who worried about the state of Marshall's mental health and the life meltdown he seemed to be going through.
1: But everything changed for Marshall Applewhite when he met his partner in crime, Bonnie Nettles, with
0: whom he began Heaven's Gate.
2: We'll return to our story in just a moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all.
1: Let's continue the story. The 65-year-old Apple White was among 39 people found dead in his group's rented Southern California mansion. In the video, he styled himself as the Good Shepherd. If you follow me, I can not only make you fishers of men, I can give you the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Applewhite invited followers to change their behavior and overcome the world so they could someday leave their bodies behind. Those who do believe it, stand a possibility of a future beyond this recycling time. Applewhite co-founded a UFO cult in the 1970s with an astrologer he met in a psychiatric hospital.
2: That astrologer Marshall Applewhite supposedly met in a psychiatric hospital was a woman by the name of Bonnie Lou Nettles, or T as she was later known.
1: Nettles was born to a Baptist family in Houston on August 29, 1927. She was baptized and born again in Christ in 1938. However, if you asked her yourself when she was born, the eccentric Nettles would have mentioned several other dates as well. As an adult drifting from a Christian faith, Nettles was drawn to alternative modes of mysticism and spirituality, which led her to believe she had lived past lives.
2: However, her more level-headed husband, a businessman by the name of Joseph Siegel Nettles, was skeptical of many of his wife's ideas. Bonnie met Joseph after becoming a registered nurse. They married in December 1949 and had four children.
1: But their 23-year marriage began to dissolve due to Bonnie's preoccupation with spirits and supernatural entities. Her rational husband just couldn't buy into this. Nettles believed that a long-dead 19th-century monk named Brother Francis was a close companion who frequently spoke to her and instructed her on how to live her life. She also regularly conducted seances with different mediums in an attempt to contact other deceased spirits. Every Wednesday night in the dark of the Nettles living room, Bonnie hosted a circle group of local folks looking to make connections with the beyond.
2: Bonnie's unorthodox beliefs in New Age spirituality and the world beyond made her an outsider within the world she was living in. As her daughter Terry recalls, quote, Mom and I didn't seem to fit in with everyone else. We'd go out and stare into the sky, and we'd swear we had seen a flying saucer. We thought, wouldn't it be fun if it had just pick us up and take us away? End quote.
1: In 1972, Bonnie Nettles had visited several fortune tellers who told her of her future, in which she would meet a mysterious man who was tall with white hair and fair complexion, a fairly apt physical description for Marshall Hurf Applewhite Jr.
2: It's important to consider that at this time in the 1970s, many academics believed that psychics and psychic phenomena, including ESP, precognition, and telekinesis, were not only genuine, but at the cutting edge of psychological research. The study of such paranormal phenomena is collectively known as parapsychology. When psychologists David Marks and Richard Kaman were confronted by several of their students at the University of Otago, telling them to wake up to the psychic reality, they began to research parapsychology and psychic phenomena. As they put it, quote, we considered it entirely possible that the psychology of perception was about to go through a psychic revolution, and if so, we wanted to be included. But over the next 3 years of research, when we examined each dazzling claim of ESP or psychokinesis (PK), we discovered that a simple natural explanation was far more credible than a supernatural or paranormal one." End quote. Their research culminated in their 1980 book, The Psychology of the Psychic a skeptical critique of parapsychology. The book debunks the existence of psychic phenomena and offers insight into the psyche of those who believe in psychic phenomena despite a lack of evidence for its existence. One such process, known as subjective validation, describes the tendency of a psychic subject to find personal meaning in a broad statement of a psychic reading. Psychics tailor their readings to their subjects, who are the ones actually doing the work by making certain connections. As psychologist Ian Rowland notes, "...in the course of a successful reading, the psychic may provide most of the words, but it is the client that provides most of the meaning and all of the significance." Subjects are inherently susceptible to such tricks because they are there to believe.
1: So while her run-in with Marshall Applewhite was likely nothing more than sheer coincidence, The fact that Bonnie Nettles was told by supposed fortune tellers that she would meet someone who looked like Applewhite in her mind made their first encounter nothing short of the fulfillment of divine prophecy.
2: Mm. Though not everyone was celebrating this meeting of minds, in an interview with ABC News following the suicides of Heaven's Gate members in 1997, Louisa Winstant, Applewhite's older sister, says on the verge of tears with a quiver in her voice that her brother was, quote, a wonderful person at one time, end quote. But it was meeting Bonnie Nettles that his sister says completely changed him from a normal person to what he became. Bonnie Nettles and Marshall Applewhite met in March 1972, though the circumstances surrounding this meeting still remain unclear. According to the writings of Applewhite, he was visiting a friend who was hospitalized in a psychiatric facility when Bonnie Nettles entered the room they immediately locked eyes in a shared recognition of esoteric secrets.
1: Although we know that Applewhite's writings were prone to hyperbole and stretched ordinary events into miraculous circumstances of profound fate. Another theory is that they did meet in a psychiatric hospital, but it was Applewhite himself who was the patient. In the 2003 book, Heaven's Gate, Implications for the Study of Commitment to New Religions, Robert Balch and David Taylor speculate, based on the claims of close friends of Marshall Applewhite, that the real reason he left his position at the University of St. Thomas, which, if you recall, he cited emotional problems, was the result of another affair with a male student. After his resignation, friends say Applewhite checked himself into a psychiatric hospital, seeking treatment for homosexual urges. And it was Bonnie Nettles who treated him.
2: It's also possible that they didn't meet in a hospital at all. According to Bonnie's daughter, Terry, Bonnie and Marshall met in the theater of a drama school in Houston, where Applewhite was teaching and Bonnie's son was a student. Bonnie's son, Joe Nettles, corroborated this story. However, personally, I'm partial to the version of the story that comes from Applewhite's older sister. According to Louisa, Applewhite had been going through some severe health issues following the death of their father in 1971. While having an operation performed for heart blockage, Marshall Applewhite had a near-death experience. After the operation, one of his nurses, Bonnie Nettles, told him that God kept him alive because he had a purpose, and she knew exactly what that purpose was. Now hold on, Vanessa. Can you explain to our
1: listeners what a near-death experience actually is, and why they might be relevant to the kind of change seen in Applewhite's behavior?
2: Mm -hmm. Of course. A near-death experience, or just NDE for short, is a subjective phenomena that, according to neuroscience research, is the result of... Disturbed bodily multisensory integration during a life-threatening experience. NDEs only occur during a situation that could result in the death of its subject, such as an urgent medical procedure, and encompasses a variety of sensations. One of the most common of such sensations is a feeling of levitation and the detachment from one's body, as if one's soul has ascended above their physical framework. Other common NDE sensations include feelings of warmth, serenity, security, absolute disillusion, and the presence of a strong shining light.
1: Like the bright light one supposedly sees the moment that they die? I always thought that was just in the movies.
2: Well, in all likelihood, that was a trope that came about as the result of a near-death experience someone once had, which is also part of what's so fascinating about near-death experiences. They're often transcendental, spiritually enlightening experiences, and some people have even claimed to have visited or seen the afterlife during their NDE. NDEs are known to permanently change one's personality and outlook on life. Psychology professor Kenneth Ring identified a consistent set of value and belief changes in people who have had a near-death experience. Among these changes are a higher sense of self-worth, a greater appreciation for life, more compassion for others, less concern for acquiring material wealth, a heightened sense of purpose and self-understanding, elevated spirituality, desire to learn, greater ecological sensitivity and planetary concern and a feeling of being more intuitive. Some people also describe a feeling that their brain has been altered to encompass more, and feeling that one is now using the whole brain rather than a small part. There's a common myth, popularized by journalist Lowell Thomas's foreword to Dale Carnegie's famous self-help book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, that, quote, the average person develops only 10% of his latent mental ability, end quote. However, researchers using MRI scans have concluded that there are no dormant parts of the brain, and that most of the brain is active almost all of the time. However, research done by psychologist Bruce Grayson on near-death experiences revealed that not all after-effects are necessarily positive. Changes in one's attitude and outlook can result in psychosocial and psychospiritual problems, often as a result of adjusting back to ordinary life in the wake of a near-death experience. So, to answer your question, if Marshall Applewhite actually did have a near-death experience, as his sister claims, prior to meeting Bonnie Nettles, then the kind of drastic changes that came about in his spiritual outlook and behavior would actually make perfect sense.
1: Well, while we may never know the true story of how and where they first met, we do know that upon meeting, Nettles immediately performed an astrological reading on Applewhite and found an uncanny alignment between her stars and his own. This fascinated Applewhite and he became enamored by her. However strange her ideas may have seemed, Bonnie Nettles was intelligent, well-read, and highly confident in herself and her beliefs.
2: With his own life in a state of chaos, Applewhite found that Nettles was able to string together ideas about the cosmos and the nature of reality that gave a sense of order to the universe.
1: Nettles came into the picture at just the right time in Applewhite's life to be able to have the impact that she did. In the midst of a life crisis, Applewhite had just begun to search new places for the answers to the spiritual questions he once turned to traditional Christian doctrine for. He studied astrology and the teachings of mystics. He took lone retreats into the desert and consumed the literary science fiction of Robert A. Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke.
2: According to his friend Hayes Parker, Applewhite had come to believe that UFOs were the objects people had once taken to be angels. He also claimed to have had several visions, including one in which he was told that he was to play a role in life similar to that of Jesus.
1: And Nettles seemed to feed into this delusion. She told Applewhite that their meeting was foretold to her by extraterrestrials, persuading him that he had a divine assignment to undertake. Applewhite and Nettles became extremely close almost instantly, and Applewhite concluded that he had known her for a long time in past lives before. Vanessa, from a psychological perspective, what exactly do you think was happening with these two?
2: Well, great question, Greg. As I mentioned earlier, Susan Rain believed that Applewhite had a schizophrenic episode around this time, and writes that Nettles, quote, was responsible for reinforcing his emerging delusional beliefs, end quote. I think this is best illustrated in the following passage from the New York Times profile on Nettles and Applewhite. Quote, An overpowering notion about heavenly connections had entered his head, perhaps caused by stress or some genetic chemical time bomb or a combination of both. In this frame of mind, many psychiatrists say Mr. Applewhite was vulnerable to paranoid disorders. Sometimes a person who cannot handle reality makes up a new one, Restoring self-esteem with the vainglorious idea of being God's special deputy, persuading others, can then be an important part of sustaining the fantasy, end quote. Basically, because Nettles was already susceptible to the sorts of eccentric beliefs that Applewhite was spouting, and thought that their meeting was the fulfillment of a prophecy foretold to her by mediums and fortune tellers, Nettles was more than willing to buy into his divinations, especially because they put her on a pedestal. And by buying into Applewhite's bizarre ideas, she gave them legitimacy in his mind and fueled his delusion. However, psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton has speculated that Nettles' influence may have actually helped Applewhite in preventing further psychological deterioration.
1: Pretty soon, Nettles and Applewhite moved in together. Despite their cohabitation, their relationship was never sexual in nature.
2: Mm, And that was a big deal for Applewhite, who for so long had been struggling with his own sexuality. It seemed to bring him nothing but grief, and this was his way to escape all that. Cohabiting with Nettles fulfilled Applewhite's longtime desire for an intimate and loving relationship that could remain platonic.
1: Nevertheless, when Bonnie's husband Joseph learned of her relationship with Applewhite, he immediately filed for divorce. Instead of trying to repair the damage for the sake of her children, Bonnie chose Applewhite and lost custody over her four children.
2: Applewhite and Nettles saw themselves as soulmates. All they felt they needed was each other.
1: And, of course, a way to make a living. So Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles embarked on several business ventures together that allowed them to spread their teachings. They opened a bookstore together in Houston called the Christian Arts Center, which carried books on a variety of spiritual subjects and sources. They also started a venture called No Place, that's K-N-O-W, Place, through which they taught classes on mysticism and theosophy.
2: Theosophy, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the term, is a broad category for a collection of mystical and occultist philosophies concerning the presumed mysteries of life, the nature of reality and divinity, and the origin and purpose of the universe. Theosophy is a product of Western esotericism, a school of thought that was born in the 17th century as a pre Enlightenment rejection of mainstream Christianity. Esotericism offers alternative presuppositions about the nature of reality that are not accepted by mainstream religion or Enlightenment rationalism. Movements such as Kabbalah, a school of ancient Jewish mysticism, or Hermeticism, an ancient Greek philosophy based on the writings of Hermes, are considered to be esoteric. But to many esotericism is synonymous with occultist, and so they disregard these traditions as magic or superstition. But esotericists posit that there's a hidden wisdom from the ancient past that can offer mankind a path to salvation and enlightenment.
1: And that was the path which Bonnie Nettles and Marshall Applewhite decided to travel. Their local businesses weren't enough to fulfill their divine destiny, so they closed them all down. And on New Year's Day, 1973, Nettles and Applewhite resolved to voyage throughout the country to spread their gospel. She was to be the sage, and he the speaker.
2: Before their departure, Marshall Applewhite drove up to Dallas to see his sister Louisa. He told her that he would no longer see or contact members of their family anymore. Louisa was shocked and said, what's the matter with you? That's not the real you. His departing response was, you just don't know the real me.
1: We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network.
2: And now back to the story.
1: Once again, mirroring his childhood on the road, Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles set out on their journey throughout the southwest and the west coast of the country. They had no money and no plan. All they had was a mission, a mission from God to spread their teachings. The only problem was they had no one who would listen.
2: Dr. Robert J. Lifton described their early travels as a, quote, restless, intense, often confused, peripatetic spiritual journey, end quote. To fund their travels, Nettles and Applewhite had to resort to selling their blood and working odd jobs. Much of the time, they either camped out and subsisted on bread rolls alone, or they would find lodging and eateries and just skip town without ever paying the bill.
1: Nettles and Applewhite pondered the life of St. Francis of Assisi and read works by authors including Helena Blavatsky, R.D. Lang, and Richard Bach. Applewhite also continued to feed his love of modern science fiction. But it was the King James Bible that would be most significant to Nettles and Applewhite over the course of their travels. They mostly studied New Testament passages that focused on Christology, asceticism, and eschatology.
2: Several months into their journey, Applewhite and Nettles formed a rough outline, laying out the basic tenets of their belief system. One, Nettles and Applewhite are prophets sent by God to fulfill divine prophecy. Two, Nettles and Applewhite had been given higher-level minds than everyone else. Three, Nettles and Applewhite would be killed for their beliefs and subsequently resurrected from the grave and transported onto a spacecraft for all to behold. This event would be known as the Demonstration. And of course, one of their most infamous claims was an interpretation of a passage from the Book of Revelations. Quote, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses... And they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Can you guess who Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles identified as the two witnesses?
1: Well, I'm guessing like all the other tenants he mentioned, it was about them.
2: Exactly, and hmm. that's probably the most crucial way to distinguish between a cult and other religions or belief systems. Cults are almost always constructed around a leader, a living person to whom members must submit total loyalty. And if the leader is charismatic enough, a good way to get people to bend the knee, so to speak, might be to claim that this living person, who one can see and hear and touch, is actually divine.
1: Well, Nettles and Applewhite certainly played that strategy. At one point, they even wrote up a pamphlet that described Jesus' reincarnation as a Texan, hoping those that read it would make the connection to Applewhite.
2: But it was their claim regarding the Book of Revelations that gained them enough notoriety to at least be given a platform at a few churches and spiritual groups to spread their teachings and speak on their identities. At this point, they started referring to themselves as the Two— or as the media preferred, the UFO too. Unfortunately for the two, their ideas were widely denounced and poorly received wherever they went. No one was biting, and things weren't looking good for the two.
1: Until May 1974, when the two became the two plus one. After months of correspondence with a friend in Houston, a scrappy real estate agent and mother of two named Sharon Morgan, Nettles and Applewhite went to pay her a visit. That day, she made the decision to convert to their way of life. Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles officially had their first follower.
2: Applewhite and Nettles went by many names over the years. The Two, Bo and Peep, Doe and Tee, a reference to Applewhite's background in music education, and Guinea and Pig, which came from a declaration many remember Applewhite making, quote, "...we are the two prophesized in Revelation." God has sent us here as an experiment, so you might call us guinea and pig, end quote. Whatever you want to call them, at this point, Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles were no more. Those were just the names of two humans whose bodies hosted these extraterrestrial angels on a divine mission to redeem mankind.
1: So after all that time spent on the road reclaiming his childhood and searching for a place and a purpose, Marshall Applewhite finally found what he was looking for all along a new identity.
2: Next week, we'll discuss the rest of Doe and T's journey and examine how they were able to generate a loyal following and the methods of persuasion they used to do so.
1: We'll also go into more depth about the practices and beliefs of Heaven's Gate, who the members were and the reasons they joined, and what compelled these people to end their lives and the largest mass suicide ever to take place on U.S. soil.
2: Thanks again for tuning in to Cults.
1: If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com.
2: If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: It seems simple, but it really helps our show.
2: Mm-hmm. Join us next Tuesday as we continue delving into the twisted psychology behind the Heaven's Gate cult. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Ron Shapiro, production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, Joel Stein, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Donnie Goffstein and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.